0: I'd like to welcome back our guest, Erin Panyan. Thank you for joining us today, Erin. Thank you for having me. Now, Erin is a doctor of pharmacy, and I'd like you to give us your background information. I mean, had you always wanted to be a pharmacist
1: as a child? Oh, sure. Actually, I wanted to be a doctor first and foremost. But when I got into college, I did an internship in the ER and um, figured out really quickly that I am bad at, uh, I tend to pass out when there's anything bloody or anything like that. So I figured it wasn't the right path for me. So I kind of figured a more um, not hands-on approach literally would be a little bit better. And my mom was a pharmacist and I went and shadowed her a few times and I just thought it was really neat on the knowledge of medications and what they were doing. And I, I thought it was a really fun field to get into. So that's when I went to pharmacy school. And then with compounding, I had a rotation in my sixth year of compounding or in my sixth year of pharmacy school, I had a compounding rotation and I just thought it was so fun. I'm like, it's something new every day. We get to figure out problems. You know, you get the, the best phone calls of just people trying to figure out what to do or what how to get medications either themselves or for their pets or for their kids or for their mom. So really helping to figure somebody, help somebody figure something out was a lot of fun for me. And it's, um, to this day, it's still something I enjoy the most about the job, just trying to figure out, you know, we always get the patients that have trouble finding help anywhere else, and we're always able to try and help them. So it's, it's a very rewarding and, and fun job. And I've been doing it now for 17 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain to our listeners what it is, that you do in pharmacy school, and how many years? I know you said in your sixth year,
1: I believe mm-hmm. seven, isn't it? Now it's seven. Yeah. yeah. So back when I went to school, it was six, um, and the each schools are a little bit different. I went to a pharmacy school that you could start from day one and just finish in it, whereas um, a lot of other places have where you do like a pre farm program, so you might do two or four years in pre farm, and then actually enter the pharmacy school for three or four years. So mine was six years. Um, and then I did a residency training afterwards. So that was at the VA. It didn't really have anything to do with compounding. I learned that, um, afterwards I kind of switched over to compounding, but, um, I did some more residency training after school and some people do a year or two. I did one year and then I just entered straight into compounding from there. Mm -hmm. And
0: what
1: kind of, things do you
0: learn in pharmacy school initially just walk walk us through it so we can understand you know what training a pharmacist has to have oh sure become a compounding pharmacy
1: yeah so honestly it's not a lot of compounding so um, we have students on site so I still get to kind of see exactly what they're going through every year even though I've been out of school so long so generally it's still about the same you get a class on compounding one class out of kind of those six or seven years and you learn kind of the basics. Um, I think the pharmacy school here, they have a couple newer machines and technology that we use currently, but like back when I went to school, it was all very antiquated um, in terms of what they taught you for compounding because they didn't teach you much on it. So it was still using an old ointment slab and um, very sort of old school pharmacy, whereas now I always talk about compounding being old school pharmacy, but with new inventions and fancier machines to kind of help us do it and make it a little bit more accurate and a little bit faster. Um, So a lot of pharmacy school is going through all these other medications that you would see anywhere else, whether it be at the hospital, at Walgreens, at CVS, going through um, different medical conditions and learning about those learning how the drugs work for those conditions, learning how the drugs work in the body and how they break down and get to the different tissue level. Um, But it definitely doesn't prepare you fully for compounding. I always say when somebody comes to work for us, it's about a 75% on the job um, experience training. Cause with compounding, there's a lot of stuff out there that people haven't done before. So a lot of what I depend on is kind of a network of compounders that you can communicate with. So I'm part of a listserv of compounders from across the world. And people would just kind of sometimes send an email out to everybody like, I have a patient that needs this. I can't find any data on it. What have people done? So, so you kind of take your background information of conditions and um, different disease states and things like that. And then you take your information of the drugs that you're able to utilize or the bulk chemical powders that you're able to get. And through that information, sometimes you just kind of have to figure out a unique way to give the medication to the patient or a unique dosage form or something like that. So it's a lot of on the job training and it's one of those jobs that the longer you do it, the better you are at it. Cause you've just seen more. So you've just seen more things. You've, you've done a lot more, but, You know, it's fun from the get go, but you definitely as as experience goes along, you definitely get more used to some of the questions a little bit faster at being able to figure out some of the problems.
0: And what about drug interactions?
1: I mean, that must be part of your course. It definitely is. And it's one of the more trickier parts, to be honest, because being a cash only pharmacy, um, we do have to make sure to take a pretty good medication history with the patients with Inch, people that bill insurance a lot of times, insurance does that drug utilization review and that interaction review for you automatically. So when you bill the insurance company, it will see even if they even if the patient didn't get that drug at your pharmacy, it will see they got it at another pharmacy and it will alert you to the fact that it's going to interact. Uh, here we don't have that because we're just cash only and we don't bill insurance on that, but we're able to kind of take a thorough medication history of the patients and there's a lot of stuff that are your common interactors um, that will interact with a lot of drugs so anytime we see that you know we always make sure um, to be even more thorough and just make sure that they give us everything that they're on so that we know to be able to check through those interactions and make sure it's not something that's not going to work out for the patient. Mm -hmm.
0: So in your pharmacy just go through
1: the different options that you can have. For LDN? Oh, sure. For LDN, our most common form is tablets uh, because a lot of times patients are going to start out on a lower dose and then work up on the dose. So, tablets make it very convenient um, because you can split them in half. I even have some patients that split them in quarters. So, therefore, they can start with one tablet or a half tablet and then increase up as gradually as they need to do to reach their target dose. So I do find the tablets are the easiest and they are the most common with us. We also do capsules. Um, Capsules, the only downfall with that is you can't really split them. Um, So you can't split the capsules in half. So you're kind of stuck with doing one or two or three multiples or something like that we can do different liquids. Um, liquids are nice in terms of being able to dose them because with liquids, the the options are endless. You know, if you have a, a one milligram per one milliliter, you know, you could use one mil to get the one milligram dose. If you wanted to start at 0.1 milligrams, you'd only have to use 0.1 ml. If you wanted to go up to a target dose of 4.5, then you could go up to 4.5 mls. So you could do all your doses with just one Liquid, you know the only downfalls there are taste. You know if somebody doesn't like the taste of it. Uh, it's not the worst tasting medicine. It's not the best tasting medicine. But everybody's different on their their palatability tolerances. Um, so you've got that excipients. If somebody is sensitive, to the excipients. Um, storage it's not as convenient um, some of them are room temperature but still just keeping a liquid around it can also be a little messy if you spill some it can be sticky so you know a lot of times people just prefer taking a tablet or a capsule or a liquid um, we've also done cream so any sort of topical we can do gels and creams there is a LDN and eye drop um, that is something we're looking into providing to patients being an eye drop, it definitely comes with a little more um, stringent rules and testing and, and things like that. We do have a sterile room that we can make it in. Um, it's just about getting the formula down and getting the testing done on it and getting that out to patients. I um, feel like I'm missing one suppositories. I mean, LDN I've seen done in almost every single dosage form we have available. We've done a sublingual, so something that you can dissolve underneath your tongue. So if some patients um, they might get some GI side effects from naltrexone. So the sublingual dosing under the tongue is a good way to help mitigate those side effects. And I think I've covered most of what I've what I've seen. Pretty much okay. all of those are options.
0: So what about fillers that you use in
1: your preparations? Sure. So um, with fillers, our most common one is cellulose. Um, we do have some patients that are allergic to cellulose. And from there, you know, if they need something else done, we definitely work with them. Um, but generally, if just an naltrexone script comes across, we're going to default into that unless the doctor or the patient has alerted to us that the patient needs to be worked with and they don't want a cellulose filler. So a lot of times we'll work with a patient and see what they want or need. Um, so whether it be with a capsule, the possibilities are pretty much endless. We can choose something of their liking. Um, Probably the second most common would be rice flour. We see that a lot, but we can also do tapioca. I've done inulin before, um, crushed salt, um, arrowroot, all sorts of different fillers, oat flour. And so we can, the possibilities are pretty endless with capsules. Um, fillers on liquids get a little trickier. Um, Naltrexone is water soluble. So theoretically, you can just put the naltrexone in water and dispense it to the patient. But when it's just in water without a preservative, it can only be good for 14 days, and it has to be refrigerated. So not only do they have to get it refilled every 14 days, but they have to pay for it every 14 days. So that can get a little cost prohibitive, considering a lot of times we're dispensing up to three months for a patient. And not just uh, 14 days at a time um, fillers for non water liquids, um, we can do an oil, if they're tolerant of different oils. Uh, again, we just come across a different palatability and tolerances, some people just don't like that oil feel. And then um, there is another liquid that's available that has data on it, and um, it's a little bit better mouthfeel, but it does have different excipients in it that people just may not be able to tolerate. So lots of different options that we, we definitely can work with patients on, um, to try and figure out what's going to work best with them. Cause we definitely want them to get the advantage of the medicine without reacting to the excipients. Cause you know, then that doesn't help the patient at all. So we definitely want to make sure that they're going to get the advantage of the, the medication.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, What disease states would you say mainly
1: your patients are using LDN for? The most common that we see, um, any sort of autoimmune disease, and that can kind of run the gamut. You know, we have some doctors that if their patient is, has any sort of autoimmune condition, lotus naltrexone is one of the first lines for them. GI diseases, so anything from ulcerative colitis to Crohn's, IBS, IBD, we see a lot of naltrexone for that. Um, Restless leg syndrome is another common one. Uh, fertility. We see a lot in women's health and we have some doctors that will prescribe it for um, patients that are having trouble conceiving, having trouble keeping pregnancies or having a lot of miscarriages and um, depression. We see it for that from um, some different psychiatrists around town. Those are probably the most common ones that we see. And then you'll have kind of random ones thrown out there because it can be used for so many different things. Uh, Pain, pain is actually another one. So we see it a lot for Um, Anything from fibromyalgia to nerve pain to um, CRPS, chronic regional pain syndrome. So we do see it a lot for pain too. I think those are the main things that we see, but it definitely doesn't encompass everything it can be used for. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you talk to patients, what do you um, tell them about LDN and the expectations? Because I mean, some people they're so desperate to find an answer. They want it to work on day one.
1: Oh, I know. I feel so bad when I tell them it's probably not going to be day one. Um, We definitely, you know, this can take several weeks to work. You know, it is definitely working. It's not just a band aid. It's helping to work in the underlying mechanisms with inflammation and modulating the immune system. I have had some patients call me like after one day and they're like, this stuff is miraculous, but that is definitely not um, the norm. You know, normally it's going to take a little bit to work, and. Yeah, you know, some patients get frustrated because like you said, they're so ready to have an answer and they want to feel better. So they've already been through so many other things, but generally I always tell patients, give it a good three month trial at your full dose. You know, don't just give the one milligram a shot for two weeks, make sure to work up if you're able to tolerate it, uh, make sure to work up to that and then give it a good shot at the full dose. And I tell them it's, it's not going to work for everybody, but it definitely is a great option that we've seen change lives. So considering the fact that it's not expensive, um, the side effects are minimal um, and mild generally. So I always tell them it's worth a shot, especially with some of these patients that have just been through the gamut on doctors and treatments and things like that. So so a lot of them do give it a shot. We see it very successful in a lot of patients and then I have some patients that will stop it just to see like oh I think I can come off of it now and they're like oh no I can't I need that back and so they'll come be like I thought I could come off of it now I feel much better on it so um so it kind of helps confirm and reaffirm to them that that it is really helping them out
0: well I've been taking LDN nearly 20 years and people you know are worried about the long-term effect of taking LDN but LDN generally is in your system for like four hours. So every day you're getting like a 20 hour break. Mm-hmm. But what do you say to people when they ask, you know, how
1: long can you take LDN for? Oh, absolutely. So it's been studied in low dose now for probably about 40 years. So I was telling that, um, you know, we do have data over 40 years now and that it's still not really showing any, long-term adverse effects. And that really the benefits of it should outweigh, you know, any potential again, and I can't even really think of any long-term effects that they've seen from it, from patients being on it for a long time. So, you know, you get those side effects at the beginning, whenever you're on it, you might have some of those as you're working up, but, but generally I'm not seeing, and I don't think there's any data out there on the long-term that there is any harm to taking it long-term. So, so I think after 40 years of studies, and I always refer them to the LDN research trust, cause it kind of shows all of the different studies and things that have been done on it. And they do, they love that source because a lot of my patients want to look up this and, and they haven't heard of it before. So they'll see the studies for themselves and see what it's all being done in and see the adverse effects of it and everything like that. So that helps give them a little peace of mind also, um, so I think that does help, but they're also used to, here in America, we've got all those commercials on TV and these drugs that come up and you know, all the side effects are like death and brain tumors and all this. So I think it always helps them too. That's like, we haven't seen any of that with this over 40 plus years. So I think you can feel a little better with that also.
0: Well, being English when I come to America and you have a lot of commercials on <laughs> your stations and, and there's a really nice, advert promoting some drug and then very quickly at the end they they it's there and they i know yeah it's very quickly and they're saying and possible side effects could be heart attack stroke cancer i know it's terrible a, a possible death and you think why wouldn't anybody now after such a lovely advert that makes you you're, you're going to feel so much better and this that neil and,
1: and that you 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 could die I know, I know. But yeah, people just remember that jingle or something like that. That was at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So with LDN,
0: when you said that you could potentially have some side effects while you're titrating up when you first start LDN, what do you tell people those side effects could possibly
1: be? I definitely see vivid dreams the most. So a lot of times um, I warn them about the vivid dreams right off the bat, and a lot of times the doctors have done that warning too. It seems to be the most common one that the doctors warn them about too. Um, we have seen that it works as well in the morning. So a lot of doctors will just proactively write for it in the morning rather than having a patient take it at bedtime. But it does work on those endorphins that come out at night. So it it does make sense that the dreams would be more vivid because those endorphins are, are coming out then. But I tell them that's the most common. Um, Sometimes the majority that I see might be um, dizziness, jitteriness, some stomach effects, constipation, diarrhea, um, stomach upset, um, just general stomach upset is another one is one of the main ones. So I tell them it's fairly mild, but you know, if they do experience it, um, you know, give it a couple days before they increase it, hopefully that will just those side effects will kind of disappear, you know, if they don't, and if they're up at a dose, like three to four milligrams or something like that, that might be the dose they stay on. We don't have everybody that gets up to the target dose of the 4.5, but that may just be something they have to do lower than that. Um, seen a couple people with anxiety, but I don't see that as much, but it's definitely the vivid dreams that come out probably more than anything, but usually that can be pretty mitigated by taking it in the morning. I've had
0: some... Uh- Personally, I never had vivid dreams, but oh, some really? Say that these dreams are so fantastic, they don't want them to end, you know. And so I have had a couple of people that enjoy it,
1: so yes. <laughs> I'm like, Well, if you want to take it at night, you go for it, that's
0: fine. <laughs> but I'm sure that your body gets used to it, and the vivid dreams stop anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. it's good if you can enjoy it while you can,
1: right? I, mean, <laughs> I can't
0: really remember dreaming, I can probably remember you know, one dream every three years. I'm sure I dream, <laughs> but I just can't can't remember. So could you tell us what you think is the most common dose when somebody is stabilized on LDN?
1: is definitely the most common we see. We're able, a lot of our patients are able to get up to 4.5. So that's by far the most common that we do. Um, The one milligram and the 4.5 are probably the two most common doses that we do. The one milligram for when they're just starting to work up and they need that smaller dose to be able to tailor their work up. But then the 4.5, we do have a majority of patients that tolerate it and that are able to stay on the 4.5. The two to the four milligrams anywhere in there. So whether it be, 2, 2.5, 3, 3.54, um, we do have some patients that just stay on there and that they're probably all about the same, to be honest. It seems like um, our majority of patients are outside or at the 4.5. And then after that, it's anywhere from two to four. And those are all about the same uh, in terms of quantities and what, where patients are stable. So uh, 4.5 is generally the most common.
0: Now, there are a few doctors that will prescribe a higher dose than
1: 4.5. Do any of your doctors do that? They do so not as much, I do see it every once in a while, um like a four point five twice daily, so we do have some doctors, and every once in a while we do have some doctors that will go up to a five or a six, so I do see the five or the six just in some doctors and patients that they're so close on the four point five they have faith that that five or that six is gonna really push them to to feeling they're optimal, and so when they get put on the five or the six and they they find it works better for them. So they, they do stay on that. So um, we do see that every once in a while. I don't know if there's much data on going above 4.5, but, but we do see it every once in a while for patients or doctors that, that think that extra little, little push will help out.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for having joined us today and sharing your experience. It's been uh, very educational. Well, thank
1: you. I appreciate you having me.